There is so much fake news online and even more about health conditions. Aside from people talking about their star signs, fake news about health has become one of my biggest pet peeves. To be honest, it's not always easy telling the difference. I'm here to help. Welcome to Debunking Medical Myths with Dr. Diggy. In every episode, I'm joined by a health professional to chat about these issues. Fake medical news isn't just silly, it's dangerous. So I hope you learn something useful and stay safe. It's a new year with unfortunately some of the challenges of the last. This time last year, we had no idea that COVID-19 would dominate 2020 and change our lives forever. Although I recorded an episode of Dr. Gabby about COVID-19 back in March, I thought it'd be great to reflect and discuss some of the some of the things we've learned about the disease and the new vaccine. I've invited Dr. Sarah Ann Wilson to join me in this, in this podcast to discuss this further. She's an infectious diseases and microbiology registrar working in London. She's also a trustee for the Royal Society of Medicine and the Mitchell City of London Charity and Educational Foundation. Throughout the pandemic, she's treated patients with suspected and confirmed COVID-19. As part of her role in the hospital, she's worked on COVID-19 related clinical trials, including the recovery trial and the Oxford vaccine trial at her hospital. I remember meeting Sarah years ago when we worked together to help organise TEDx Houston, a London-based conference focused on African ideas worth sharing. I'm so pleased to have her on today to share her insights and experiences about COVID-19. All right, so as you know, I often start like every episode with like true or trash statements and when we discuss, we'll discuss them in a bit more detail, but the first one, Lord help me not to laugh, but... (laughs) (laughs) okay herbal herbal remedies can save me from coronavirus or COVID-19 true or trash trash that is trash (laughs) so yeah I don't know (laughs) we've been on a few webinars and zoom calls and I think a lot of people unfortunately have been like I believe monopolizing on this whole coronavirus to like sell their and push their products because there's nothing wrong with like a juice or a healthy fruit juice with lots of vitamins and minerals in it, but like to claim that it helped cure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to, when we talk about these things, to think about the fact that in reality, the majority of people who get COVID will will be fine and will be well. They'll have mild disease mm-hmm. and they'll be lucky enough not to have any lasting long complications. That will be the majority of people. Mm-hmm. Um, however, for those people who get moderate to severe COVID, um, unfortunately, these things are not proven to to make a difference whatsoever. So we know that there is a spectrum of people who are, are more likely to get severe disease. So we see it in people who've got comorbidities. We see it in people who are mm-hmm. overweight. We've seen it in certain ethnic minority groups, but most likely related to exposure as opposed to actual genetics. Yes. Um, We've seen it in people who have underlying respiratory diseases, which is understandable. So we know there is a proportion of people who will get very significant disease and will be at risk of dying. And the important thing to say about those people is if, people are starting to feel more unwell it's important that they seek medical attention and get reviewed by somebody who is medically trained whether mm. that be initially calling one and having a chat with them 
or whatever the service being their, their specific country, whether it be phoning their GP, whether it be walking into a walking centre or going into yeah. an accident and emergency if they are very unwell. Um, I think it's really important because, I mean, at the beginning of the coronavirus outbreak, we had very little knowledge about exactly what would work and what wouldn't work. Yes, we had some theories, exactly. which yeah. is why we then went on to do trials to try and prove or disprove things that would work and wouldn't work. And there were a lot of, um, there was a lot of, I'm going to say noise around mm. certain treatments that, you know, may have had a benefit and possibly in in vitro showed some benefit. But yeah. in reality, when thoroughly tested and scrutinised, actually didn't show any benefit. And I think that's important to say as well, because I think the good thing about medicine and science is that we are quite happy to change our mind based on yeah. evidence and data. Absolutely. If something is proven not to work following extensive trials or following a mass of data then we will change our minds yeah definitely absolutely and that's how a lot of people don't if people may not know but that's how a lot of drugs are found you know when we talk about trials we'll test a drug and see how it works on a small population maybe like 10 20 people then we'll repeat it again on like a hundred and then repeat it again to check for any issues with safety and side effects on a huge and a much larger scale and with that we can pick up more trends and more changes and, and and all those things and sometimes you can even find when you're when you're with any drug actually you go into a trial a study looking at say for example let me think is it minoxidil which is a drug that was initially looked at oh maybe this is going to be useful for high blood pressure and then mm. they found that hang on all these men seem to be like grown hair. Like, what's, what's going on? Like, why they're so hairy? And then, and they were like, this guy was like, I, I was bold. So now I have hair. And they were like, oh, so maybe we can, we can use this for hair loss. So, you know, it's fascinating what, yeah, what you think... can get out of research. And scientists have to be open-minded and are always open-minded to discover new ways of way of dr- how drugs can work so that that's just one example of uh precisely you know, serendipitously think, finding yeah. finding something so we're, we're, that's what's so important for people to understand so when i hear things like i think we heard very early on about hydrochloric is it hydroxychloroquine yeah hydroxychloroquine <laughs> and then vitamin d uh and like, and it's like, look, these things, vitamin D, so not so much of a, it's not such a bad thing to make sure you've got your, your levels up because mm. we live in a temperate climate. We're not exposed to enough sun. So a lot of us are vitamin deficient, especially people who are black or, or, um, or darker skin tones, um, you know, cause we're, we're, we don't get, we're not able to produce it enough, um, from the lack of the sun, how we make vitamin D is also sun dependent. So, <laughs> so fine, that's that's fair. But yeah. to then make assumption and say, yeah, vitamin D is going to cure and save us. Let me just be taking vitamin D every hour, and like yeah. I don't need to worry about going to the doctors is absolutely precisely. Absolutely... And I, I think the thing to say <laughs> about vitamin D is that the recommendation is already there for us to take it. So it's fine. Yeah, take it during it's the not new. It's, it's not a new thing. Take it through, during the yeah. winter months. Um, but the reality in regards to this nasty infection yeah. is that the best way to avoid catching it is by following current guidance in regards to regularly washing your hands, making space, 
and mm. also actually social distancing unfortunately yeah yeah so not it's, seeing it's, people. it's frustrating it's but very frustrating, that, that... especially for people like you and I, who are like massive social animals. Like... Oh my goodness. <laughs> it's just like, it doesn't feel normal. I know I said this in a previous episode. I don't know how to behave in public anymore because I haven't been out. It's I just miss it so much. For someone like me, who's like such a hugger Babe. and so touchy-feely, it's been like a real, yeah, it's been a real, real hard time because I just I yeah. can't have that close contact with people that I would normally have I'm just such a yeah I'm very naturally very it's sociable tough. and very much used to being around people so this has been a tough year or you were saying this has been a tough year for getting that actually we're in the new year now I, but, I know um, right I mean it's just a continuation <laughs> we're gonna look back in like 10 20 years god willing and be like yeah that was just the same year yeah <laughs> Oh, so yeah, so we can firmly say that herbal remedies cannot save you from coronavirus. No. And I think that if you're offered anything, it's very important to, to ask and challenge like, what's actually in them. Just be careful, because just like we found out a few years ago, that certain, of um, you know, orange squashes can like ruin your teeth full of sugar. Everyone thought they were super healthy, but actually, yeah. you know, you, have to under- you need to know what's in it. Is it just full of sugar? Is it full of colourings? Is it actually, does it have any actual vitamins? Does yeah. it have any minerals? If they can't answer those questions, then just step away. Yeah. You might as well the, get The other important thing to say about foods that you buy over the counter, especially for people who might be a bit older and might be on other um, medications, there's yeah. a possibility of drug-drug interaction. So please be very yeah. careful about what you take over the counter because it could adversely affect the medications that you're on for other things. It could affect your renal function. It can affect your liver function. All of these Absolutely. things that are very important. So it's always important to, if you are going to take something over the counter, to discuss it with your um, health practitioner. Yeah. All right. So the next question is, or statement, uh, the new strain of COVID-19 is not more dangerous than the original strain. So it's not a big deal. True or trash? Mm. <laughs> well, that statement in itself is trash. <laughs> um, is it? Not more dangerous though the new it, strain yeah which is true it's, it's, it's dangerous i guess let's talk a little bit about the new variant because i think it's something that obviously a lot of people are worried about and don't really understand yeah. what's been going on so all viruses will mutate and change over time viruses are kind of their thing is that they they want to survive like like every kind of thing in the world they want to survive and so one of the things that happens with mutations is mutations that are beneficial to the virus will um, continue to be propagated and passed on and will multiply etc and for a virus it makes more sense for it to become more transmittable which is what has happened with the strain than to become more deadly or more severe and the reason being is if you are more deadly, yeah. then you are going to kill off your host and then you won't be able to pass on the virus to other people. Whereas if you're more transmittable, yeah. you can like live a life of Riley. You can you can travel the world, essentially, um, because yeah. you can piggyback on people. You could go around unnoticed and you can be passed on to more and more people. So the thing about that is, is because the virus itself is more, the new variant is more transmissible it means that 
as a whole, more people are likely to get the infection from this. So it increases the R number. We all know or have heard about R numbers now. It increases the transmissibility yeah. of the virus and means that more people have the virus. And that what that means is, as a proportion, there will be more people who will be more unwell with it. Because if you have more people with the virus, yes, there will be loads of people who have it mildly or will be asymptomatic, etc. But there will also be more people who have it um, in the severe and moderate categories who will need hospitalisation, who will need help. And that is what we're seeing now. We're seeing yeah. quite sharply in the southeast. Our hospitals are mm. absolutely overwhelmed by the, the number of cases coming in over the last couple of weeks um, because of this this new virus. Um, sorry, the new variant, which I mean, actually was initially identified, yeah. I think, back in about September, and wasn't really doing much yeah, yeah. at that point. But from about mid-November, during the kind of second lockdown, I guess it was, they noticed that in areas like Kent mm. um, and the southeast of the country, cases were still increasing quite exponentially, and they didn't really understand why, and so they did sequencing. Yeah, I remember that, and that's when they found out that yeah there was this mutation no it's a, it's a good point you made it's a good point you made to explain that actually viruses do want to survive so what makes it what does help what would help a virus survive it is to be more effective is to get into many people as possible obviously it doesn't want to kill like you said the host I, aka us um because then it won't be able to survive exactly. itself so yeah it does it, that's one of, that's what makes it dangerous so it's not something even if okay this new variant doesn't have worse side of like worse impact um on your health but the fact that it's more ineffective is actually dangerous um and more more of a problem so it's not it is a big deal and it isn't something that we can dismiss now um like you said right at the beginning COVID-19 for the majority of people if they're lucky um they're gonna have very mild mild symptoms if anything asymptomatic um but that doesn't that as a result, they may not even yeah, realise they've got that's the scary COVID. Thing. And they're yeah. going to be spreading it. So that's a scary thing. So it's so important for everyone just to be really, really careful and really take it seriously. Um, so, And I, I also feel like the, the more people do that, the less time we'll spend in this kind of limbo world of forever yeah. <laughs> lockdown. <laughs> do you know what I mean? We need to, we need to get it under control. Otherwise, yeah, I don't see things changing. Yeah. I mean, in reality, unfortunately, I feel um, like yeah, we'll be definitely. at this level of lockdown, if not at a higher level of lockdown, for a little while to come now, unfortunately. Things yeah. are that, that no, severe and that serious. The positive thing is scientists across the world and pharma- pharmaceutical companies have worked really hard together with big research institutions to actually develop vaccines. And I was so impressed. I think when I was recording the an episode, my first episode about coronavirus um, back in the, mm. March, I think, last year, I was a, a little bit suspicious that they'd be able to do this because usually there's so much red tape, so difficult to recruit exactly. people in trials. You know, there's it's, there's a, it's very challenging to, even if you exactly. have all the funding, it's still a challenge to get drugs tested and do the trials properly and have everything done without any... And I think... That's a testament. So, you know, 
a round of applause to everyone who in the scientific community and all the medics and doctors who are involved and the nurses involved in recruiting and working on these trials because we have vaccines yeah. now like and they're being administered yeah, it's, it's an incredible. absolute public health triumph i mean um you know how i feel yeah. anyway about vaccination i feel like it's such an important part of our public health effort globally um for yeah. many different diseases and it's made such a a difference to life expectancy and infant mortality in areas Absolutely. of the world where people were dying from vaccine preventable diseases so i'm oh, beyond um elated by the fact that they have managed to develop a vaccine for covid within the space of about a year i mean i think it's important to say when we talk about the fact that they have developed this vaccine um so quickly in some people's eyes is that mm. actually it builds on years and years of research and infrastructure and work exactly. in yeah. that we have known within the infectious diseases community well i mean in public health in general we've, we we always have known that there there would likely be another global pandemic there are always ongoing outbreaks and epidemics yeah. in in areas of the world that we keep an eye on and we watch out for and the World Health Organization also like fully recognise the fact that there there's likely to be other pandemics even after this one. And for mm. years, many scientists and institutions and pharmaceutical companies, etc., have been working on platform technologies which would allow that if a a pandemic such as this one or a flu or something like that came along, that they would be able to in some way use platform what what we I guess we'd call like a plug and play platform where you could essentially take mm. a part of a genetic part of the virus or whatever the infection is and put it into a ready-made um platform to deliver to people um the antigen and to to make a, a, an immune response in that way and saying so this is kind of work that's gone on for ages mm. the i mean all of the, the the vaccines that have been approved for use to date are based on the backbone of other vaccines that had been developed in the past for other yeah for other coronaviruses so coronaviruses such as mers and sars yeah. but also just other yeah, kind exactly. of infections in general so things like zika and flu um some of the the technologies have been used for before as well so it's important to note that when people think about the fact that this has happened so quickly the other thing that i mean we can't yeah, deny yeah. in regards to the fast development of the of this vaccines or these vaccines is the fact that a lot of money was thrown at it and those of you who yeah. don't work in medicine who work in other areas of the world or in other sectors we all know that actually money talks and oh yeah this is a prime example of how well money can talk when it's put into the right projects and it's invested in the yeah. right infrastructure and the right things it can make a difference such as having was it i think it's something like there are five or six vaccines now approved across the, the country across the world to be used yeah that's amazing that wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for all of the extra money and time and effort that was put into developing these vaccines so absolutely absolutely definitely something is it's 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 clearly a priority because it's a worldwide problem mm. as a pandemic so 
you're gonna it's gonna be it's not gonna be a project that's gonna be like oh we'll just do that next year no because there's no question as many of the greatest minds have been like recruited to get be involved in this project and everything has been i i even feel for the for the team um the regulatory bodies who were probably working to get like everything like but you know, fine tooth everything, make sure everything yeah. has been checked before they can approve and so they can be licensed in time because if you don't want any errors, so they've been and they're super, super thorough. So um I, I and I completely agree. I think you've made such a good point that a lot of people worry that it's not safe because it's made too quickly compared to other vaccines. But you have to understand it's twenty twenty one. The technology we have today is not the same as we had when exactly. we were first designing vaccines for the exactly. flu, let alone vaccines for Hep B, like 30, 40 yeah. years ago. So, you know, everything changes. And with that, you know, you're going to have a faster, more efficient way of producing these. And it's not from scratch. Like coronavirus isn't like, it's obviously yeah. a new strain. It's a new type of coronavirus. And that's why it's coronavirus 19. But it's not exactly like completely brand new organism like oh my goodness i've never heard of this before it's not like it's a like a dinosaur like come on we 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 have evidence of similar viruses so we they the the scientists have something to work on (coughs) precisely that so um, that's exactly what they were able to do so the genetic sequence was released within i think about um like early january and within a couple of days to weeks of that being released the scientists who were developing the vaccines already had vaccines available that they could take into preclinical and clinical trials so it it and it's because they knew that from other coronaviruses such as MERS and SARS that the spike protein which most people have heard so much about was key in regards yeah. to trying to make a um immune response it's it it's key in that actually it's the way in which the virus itself enters the cell. So it is the virus's key to, to, to the human um, system. Yeah. In. And we know, yeah. we knew that by targeting that as the antigen, we would get an antibody response, which would be protective. And that has been proven by, by trials of which there have been yeah a lot of as well. I think that's the other thing to say is um actually, uh I mean, so prior to going into medicine, I worked um, kind of a, a little bit like in pharma. So I know a lot about kind of dra- trial design, et cetera. And obviously you work in pharma now, so you know about trial design. And I think one of the yeah. things that people worried about is they were like, oh, but like normally, like, you know, they have like phase one, phase two, phase three trials and they take years. And that's correct. They do take years, but they take years for several reasons. So they take years because of, uh, so money. Uh, we've already spoken about that they take years because of recruitment and the idea that when you're recruiting for a vaccine what you need is you need to recruit healthy volunteers or volunteers who will be exposed to the effect mm. the infective agent um i mean there are other ways you can get around that you could do human ch- challenge trials which and thankfully well i say thankfully but because of the prevalence of the disease there wasn't a need for human challenge trials because actually with the disease being yeah. so prevalent within communities that that took place, um, took part in the vaccine trials, it meant that we knew that they were being exposed to the virus within their natural communities because it was prevalent within within the communities. And that's essentially one of the things that yeah. you need in order to test a, a vaccine. You need people to actually be exposed to the agent. Otherwise, you don't know whether it will prevent the yeah. disease. You don't know whether 
um, it will do anything if, if people aren't actually exposed to the, the virus naturally. Um, the other thing it takes, obviously, yeah, exactly. is, um, I mean, numbers of people, diverse groups of people. And again, with it being a global pandemic, they were able to, to run trials across the world in different areas of the world. So mm-hmm. the vaccines were trialled in India, in South Africa, in Brazil, in the United States, in the UK, in Europe. They've been trialled all over the place. And that has given us a wealth of data from different communities and different groups, as well as given us data in people who um, have kind of other medical problems as well. So people who are a bit um, older have been involved in the trials. People with other medical problems have been involved in the trials. The one group that obviously weren't yeah. involved were pregnant ladies and um, yes, yeah. uh, ladies who were known to be kind of breastfeeding, etc. But having said that, there were women of childbearing age in 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 the trials, which I think is very important because I think people often worry about kind of the long term effects that these types of vaccines might have on their fertility, etc. Yeah, that's true. That's true. It's something people are concerned with. Um, no, that's a good point. So move, I think we'll talk about in more detail about more vaccines, but I thought it might be worth going back and just talking through some of the basics yeah, about sure. COVID. So how does COVID affect your, how does COVID affect your health? So we understand it's a virus. We understand that some people have no symptoms, but I think what's difficult is some people say they have mild symptoms and they don't necessarily like hospitalized or they need to be in ITU or anything. But before it gets to that point, what's what's the pathogenesis? What is it? What does it do to your body? We know it affects the lungs, but like yeah. Lungs. So I mean, the thing about coronaviruses is, in different people, it affects people in different ways. So there is a wealth of different symptoms that people may get from the virus itself. And actually, early on in the pandemic, we learned about, for example, people losing their 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 um. What's it? Their, their smell yeah, and so and their, their their taste, taste exactly, and that was something that actually hadn't been reported before. Like it didn't really come out of Wuhan. I don't think mm-hmm. I don't remember hearing it when I was hearing the initial um, reports from Wuhan. And it might be because actually the initial reports from Wuhan were very much about how overwhelmed the hospitals were and how sick people were in hospitals. Yeah. So perhaps like the, the the minor fact of people having lost their taste of smell and um. They lost their sense of smell and their their taste was was yeah. quite minor. Actually, there's a really good um interesting fact that um in the states on Amazon, what they noticed is as the cases of um coronavirus increased across the country, reviews for scented candles yeah. started to tank on Amazon. <laughs> and I kid you not, you can look it up. This is really true. No. It really happened. And, like, nobody even realised it was a thing until, like, maybe, like, months into the pandemic that actually it was a really good sign um, in regards <laughs> to spotting people who'd had coronavirus. So, like, can't smell I, I, like, seriously, like, people were just like, these scented candles are rubbish. Like, I can't smell a thing. Don't, and they were actually, to the point where they were, like, writing reviews, like, you know, they weren't just, like... It's like a yeah, minor thing. Like, you know, exactly sometimes like you know something point. happens you might mention it to your partner but like literally like, people are like properly yeah. like making like statements on amazon like i can't believe you sent me these scented candles that don't smell of anything i'm so upset <laughs> <coughs> so that was like a real thing that wow. came out kind of i'd say probably like march to april 
Um, and yeah. in the UK, it's something that um, changed our case definition because there'd been people who'd like complained about it even on the yeah. wards and stuff, and we'd just been like, oh, it's probably nothing. But it really was a thing. So, I mean, that was one of the things. But, um, sorry, back to what I was talking about because I got a bit distracted. But, yeah, so... Um, yeah, <laughs> But, um, so, generally, what you'll find is that people will present in a number of different ways. So, they might have this transient loss of smell um, or taste. Mm-hmm. They'll generally have a persistent cough. They have difficulties with their breathing. And the majority of people will feel pretty rubbish for about... I don't know, let's say five to six days. Um, However, there's kind of a transition point where people either start to get better or they get worse. Mm -hmm. And what Mm -hmm. then is happening then is that people, it's, it's almost like, so when we talk about infections and we talk about illness in general, often it's what the virus does to you. And then it's your body's response to the host response to the virus. And in this second phase of, or this inflammatory phase of COVID, what we find is that people's own body starts to kind of be more inflammatory and they they have this kind of inflammatory response that is almost overactive to the infection, which makes them more unwell. So it makes them very sick. Um, It affects things like their clotting, um, it, it obviously affects their breathing and these are the types of people we then see that end up on kind of even needing like extra oxygen in hospital or if they're even worse if they're still spiking temperatures they're very unwell they're needing lots of oxygen that then they might either be put onto what we call non-invasive ventilation or if they're really mm-hmm. unlucky they might be intubated and put and, and that's what we call um invasive ventilation where you have a tube stuck down yeah. your throat to help you breathe and yeah. if you end up in that state then there are lots of a host of other things that could come with it it can lead to kind of other infections um people again i've already spoken about clots but a lot of people in this, these situations will then have clots that either will develop in their lungs or in their legs and they generally are very unwell yeah. with it and but it's kind of almost a perpetual cycle that that starts from that point and often at this point then people yeah. will have other organ da- damage so I think at one point we like we were looking at COVID in hospitals as kind of a single organ single system problem or a breathing yes, problem yeah. but we just alone, we very quickly yeah. learn and I mean I mean I'm not an intensivist I don't work in the intensive cares but I know a fair bit about it having like visited patients on the intensive care unit and being in two intensive care units with COVID patients on and often they'll end up needing like support for their kidneys their liver function might go off Mm. they'll have problems with their heart I've already mentioned the clotting and stuff like that so there'll be multiple other problems that will happen um I've even actually seen a number of people actually have had kind of neurological presentations because of COVID I was going to say I've heard cases of yes, strokes, strokes, but also um, just following a like significant encephalitis. I remember very early on in the first mm-hmm. wave being called to ITU as the um, infectious diseases registrar to see a patient who essentially was was definitely a young guy. He was like in his twenties, um, um, no. had been a little bit unwell for a couple of days, fever, 
COVID-like symptoms, etc. But then had like a seizure, and then like, but had, before he had the seizure, he had kind of like increased confusion, so presented like an encephalitis. Okay, ended up being kind of like tubed and intubated on ITU, COVID positive, and just to explain encephalitis, yeah. that's the so essentially uh, encephalitis is inflammation and infection of the brain, which leads to kind of. Yeah. A bit like a meningitis type picture, but often with it, there'll be added confusion and um, yeah. reduced consciousness often with it. And so that's what we call an encephalitis yeah. more yeah. than a meningitis. With meningitis, you have infection and inflammation of the brain, but often people will not be confused or have a reduced consciousness with it. I mean, mm-hmm. occasionally they will do. And in that case, we might call it a meningoencephalitis. But encephalitis itself is an inf- an infection of the, of the brain where you have a level of confusion and often seizure activity and various other things Gosh. so quite significant and very scary um and it, and like you said yeah, he, was, he was he was somebody who was very n- normally very fit and healthy he was 28 29 mm-hmm. and this was very early on in the first I wave i think so we've, we've highlighted that obviously we know, I think the average person knows that it does affect your lungs, causing a viral, because it's a virus, a viral mm. chest infection essentially, um, and or just irritation of, you know, of, of, the, of the lungs. So your, your function of the lungs and your breathing, and that's going to be laboured and more intense. And even if you don't need to be admitted to hospital, it's going to affect you, it, it'll affect how you breathe and you feel normally fit and well. And a lot of people have said, um, and these are people who, anecdotally I've met who said that um yes I didn't need to go to hospital but you know I'm climbing up and down the stairs yeah. I'm knackered and I'm not usually knackered <coughs> and it's because your work your lungs are having to work as hard because there were you know you, you had that virus viral infection with covid I wanted to actually talk about um before we move on we talked about the new strain already but what what I wanted to talk about um this idea of like long covid yeah. you know people who've had the infection it's affected them for that, you know, they're not necessarily needing an ITU and, you know, it's not as serious as an encephalitis. But long-term, I think this is something that we'll oh, be yeah, seeing a bit more of people giving long-term consequences. And this is what worries me because, yes, the acute cases are rare but are very serious, but majority of people we've discussed already have either, are either asymptomatic or have what we call mild COVID symptoms. But mild is like... It's, mild sounds like nothing, but actually it's if it continues long term like what what kind of things what what's your um what are your yeah so that? i mean i think this is a really interesting area of um medicine i mean it's a very devastating disease for those who have it unfortunately but i hope that in mm-hmm. the months and years to come people will pay more attention to it and do more research into how they can help people with the uh, long covid but essentially what long covid is is it's a little bit like i mean so people might have heard in the past of things like chronic fatigue or for example post-viral fatigue so most infections that people have um are discrete um infections they happen people feel unwell for a couple of days they then recover quite quickly and go back to their normal um baseline etc um However, often with um, pneumonias, for example, so let's talk about bacterial pneumonias. I often say to patients, even when I see them in hospital, that if you have bacterial pneumonia, as a basis, I'd say don't expect to feel like yourself for about six weeks minimum. 
And mm. I mean, maybe a lot of people don't know this, but actually just even having like a, a simple bacterial pneumonia can, can really set you back in regards to your fitness, in regards to um, just your level, your normal level of activity. It just takes a while for the body to heal itself. Yeah. But, and just to, just to say, pneumonia we're talking yeah, about chest, chest infection, so it's like, nothing... Not, Nothing unusual. It's just something that's yeah, very, very exactly. common actually. When you go to when you're clocking patients in hospital, tons of people have got chest infections. They're usually just bacteria. But like you said, yeah, you're going to be yeah. knackered. So, a while. but long COVID is something different. It's so often. Mm-hmm. I mean, not often, but I mean, in a large percentage of people who have long COVID, they will be people who are otherwise fit and healthy. And I mean, like really healthy. Like the people I've seen with long COVID have been people who've been working full time, work really long hours normally, have really hyperactive yeah. lifestyles, really social lifestyles. Often they're like athletes. They're, um, I think there have been some stories about oh, footballers actually who've got long COVID, etc. And what you find is that they tend to then present kind of maybe like a couple of weeks after they've had the initial infection and they'll say, doctor, I'm still getting fevers okay. and they'll get like intermittent fevers or they'll say, literally, I would like move from here from the couch to the kitchen and I'm done. I have to rest. And like, they'll just have extreme fatigue. They may have, um, as well as the extreme fatigue, they may have ongoing problems with their breathing and have problems with their sleep there there are so many their appetite there are so many different ways in which long covid can present and it's a really debilitating um illness especially for people who previously have been so independent fit and healthy it's very hard to go from being that type of person to then literally not having control over the of being able to even leave your house because you you get so tired just walking a few steps and unfortunately, it's it's Gosh, becoming more yeah. and more common because as more people get the infection, a, a higher yeah. percentage of people now will also present with long COVID. I think also one thing to add is, or even to ask, is a lot of people who who are going to who are diagnosed with this or have this, and they weren't ever actually admitted to hospital. Well, do you think? I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if some of them will feel cheated. Like, oh, maybe I would have been better if I was admitted, and they put me a tube down me or something. And actually, when I think about it, I put my medic hat on. I I don't know if it would would have made a no. huge difference. Maybe. What do you think? I mean, you it's know? a tricky thing, isn't it? I mean, I. I hadn't really thought about it that much because yeah. I guess the thing that we're doing the most for people in hospital and the main reason we're admitting a lot of people is because of their oxygen requirements. So if, if you come to hospital and you need yeah, oxygen, yeah, yeah. then you will be admitted because we can't give you oxygen outside of the hospital, essentially. Well, at least in this country, there are countries yeah. that I think are working on models around that. But I mean, I guess, I guess the question mm. is actually, is it that people who have long COVID um are like this because in some ways and I, d- I don't know whether or not this is this is just me like now that you've said that I'm just thinking about it because actually they've been yeah. a little bit hypoxic at home and not really noticed it because yeah you know they've still been able to yeah. to kind of function at home but they they've now like then in some way affected the way their body works long term because of the fact that they've had a period of hypoxia that they wouldn't normally have I, I don't know. I, I, I mean, yeah. it's it's an interesting area. I'm sure more research we, will be um, done into Definitely. it. Because I think it, there is something to say for the fact that it will have long-lasting effects on a lot of people's lives. 
I think long term there's going to be some with more investigation and studies looking back at how these patients some people might have just you know they have it and it's not as been as bad but like you said there might be people who have actually been hypoxic at home maybe for like an hour and that pro- they probably could have done with some oxygen but I don't know what 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 the you know other hospitals able to cope with those no, patients I mean, as well and they're just having to prioritize the really unwell ones but maybe in a few years it could be looked back and maybe there could be a follow-up or something you know how like another let's talk about another condition like stroke patients and how if patients have we're, we're very very able to identify TAAs which mm-hmm. are transitional ischemic attacks which are like mini heart mini mini strokes doesn't cause permanent um weakness in your limbs just maybe like for like transient you might for a few like an hour or half an hour or something you might have a bit of a sensation loss in your in your um loss of function in your arm but it comes back and you're okay those kind of patients when they go to their gp gp's like okay red flag yeah we're gonna have to do this test yeah we're gonna have to do that it may i don't want to alarm anyone but maybe that could be <coughs> the kind of formula or model that could be done used for patients who have been infected with the COVID, had symptoms, but not severe enough to need ITU admission to give them lots of oxygen. Just because I feel like there has to be something to be done for yeah. them long term. I don't know, some sort of follow up. But yeah, it's early days, I guess. We're just finding yeah, out. Yeah, no, I mean, definitely. What I think works. that's a really good question, though. I, and I don't know the answer to that. And I hope that more will be mm-hmm. done to help people who've been in this scenario. I mean, I've, very, I've been very fortunate not to um contract covid um during this pandemic um so wow um yeah and again that's another interesting um area of interest because there have been quite few i guess healthcare workers who've had a lot of exposure to whether it be their colleagues or patients who they didn't mm. know had covid and still managed not to um catch covid i guess the thing to say about that is just being in contact with COVID doesn't necessarily mean that you'll definitely get COVID from that person. I think there was a study that showed that actually it's something like maybe in terms of household contacts, maybe there's like a 40% chance that you might get COVID from somebody who has COVID in your house. So it's mm. not absolute that just yeah, because yeah. a member of your family have COVID that you will definitely get it. And I'm assuming that data um, are from like studies of people where there's been a household contact and everybody else in the house has has isolated yeah. but not everybody else has got it and although like people are like yeah, oh yeah, yeah but yeah. you know that person was just in the one room etc in reality it's very hard to like <laughs> isolate from your loved ones um within your house no yeah especially especially in london houses i should say maybe, maybe in country houses it's easier <laughs> but maybe i can barely um <laughs> isolate from my my neighbours let alone anybody in my actual house (laughs) I know right oh my gosh no 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 let's talk more let's go back to vaccines we've talked about trials we talked about how they work um and how you know the fact that there's you know they they weren't made too quickly necessarily like there's lots of background work that we've had already um that to be that we used scientists used to make generate these new and incredible vaccines that are available um but like I was going to ask, talk about, touch upon side effects, because this is what something a lot of people yeah, are concerned about with, with vaccines. Um, you know, vaccines historically have saved so many lives, changed the landscape, and like you mentioned earlier, kind of extended oh, yeah, life definitely. expectancy. Uh, because if you don't, if you don't contract, for example, polio, you don't contract Hep B, 
then you know you're not going to catch these diseases that can affect your exactly. life expectancy so they, they, they have a huge role and infant mortality has dropped because of simple vaccination programs um from for, men, for the meningitis mmr all those kind of vaccines so they're very very incredibly ooh, efficient um uh and uh, drugs that we need so i think it's important to like help people understand okay there are some side effects but what are they and what can we be looking out for um and then i guess talk about a bit more about the difference between a side effect and i guess you know things that we kind of expect like i think that's a, that no that's sense. a very good point so i mean when we talk about medicines in general we talk about side effects or adverse reactions um and we talk about complications as well so um there are i mean they, there may be complications from some medications um that might be long standing mm. for example so let's talk initially about side effects so i already mentioned that the trials were very extensive i think overall like in terms of people in covid uh, vaccine trials across the, the world i don't know i guess it probably amounts to hundreds of thousands because even like for example the moderna and the pfizer vaccine um trials had like something like 30,000 to 40,000 people in in the phase two phase three studies mm. and i think like the oxford vaccine had about 20,000 people in its phase three study so across the world hundreds of thousands of people received the vaccine in trials and then moving on uh, from that since then since kind of approval over a million people in this country um i think it's a million people in this country and then like uh, i think similar numbers in other countries have received the vaccines so what do we know about side effects well we know that uh they they happen because there is no drug that i don't think is without any side effects and they differ from person to person. Mm. There'll be people who will react differently to different types of things. The most common side effects are things like, for example, um, pain, localised pain at the injection site. So then at the injection site, which is not uncommon with vaccinations, it's not uncommon with anything. If I stick yeah. you with a needle anywhere, then, then there is yeah. a possibility you that you'll get, get you'll have some pain there. Um and then other things, including more kind of systemic responses to the vaccine. And some of these systemic responses are actually a sign that the vaccine itself is working, I should should add. Because the idea of giving somebody the vaccine is that you want their body to recognise that you've given them something foreign. And you want it to then yeah. develop antibodies, which will allow it to protect the body in the future if it comes across the same foreign thing in the future. So... Often people yeah. will complain about things like feeling a bit tired. They might have a fever and that's not uncommon. And I mean, I'm sure any of you who have children who've had kind of um, childhood vaccinations, you'll know that often um, GPs will recommend that you give the child some cowpole or something post-vaccination because they're likely to get a fever. Um, some people have had kind of uh, myalgia, which means like kind of muscle pain all over headaches dizziness overall the majority of side effects have been transient and have gone away with simple analgesia rest fluids etc um there have been very few side effects that have required people to be hospitalized or um have caused long-lasting side effects 
based on the trial data that we have to date. So I think there is a caveat with that in that most people will argue that we don't know what the long-term complications of these vaccines are because most of them, like the earliest mm. vaccine, I think probably in regards to these trials were probably given in about April, maybe maybe later than that, maybe June, July, yeah. I'd say. So at most we have like six months worth of data, which is true. But the thing to say about these vaccines is we know actually that the majority of side effects related to giving a vaccine will be seen within the first six weeks of the vaccine being given. So that's the other thing to say about it. So long-term side effects, especially of vaccines that work in the way that these vaccines work, should be rare. And and I mean, obviously I can't say that like 100% and there will always be um a very small major yeah. um small um percentage of people who might have some kind of long-term immunogenic um response to vaccines or for example um as has been quite wildly widely advertised the fact that people with with allergies um are at risk of having kind of anaphylaxic responses and that's another thing to kind of remember that you know obviously if you have a history of significant allergies you probably are unlikely to be able to have the vaccine unfortunately yeah but it kind of makes sense to me and I guess that's because I'm a medic and I know that patients who have a long list of allergies or we call them obviously yeah. atopic so that then they have this, they have this propensity or this ability to unfortunately just be allergic to either dust or eggs or lots of mm. multiple things they're going to be they're going to be allergic unfortunately likely to they're more likely to have a immune response or a, an allergic response to um the vaccine not necessarily because it has anything wild in it it's because their immune system almost is um almost overreacts to a lot of things that your average person would not react yeah. to so that that's that's something to think about as well so We'll see. Hopefully, they'll 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 there'll be a, more vaccines developed that would account for this and help and, and be tested maybe in this population. I think one of the other things I I also wanted to say about vaccines and kind of the way in which they work mm. is that they don't work instantaneously, and I think this is really important. I I've seen recently that people have been sharing there's an article somewhere about a an ER nurse or something uh, who got the vaccine and then got COVID, like seven ten days later or something and I have no idea how this is even news I was literally like how is this even a news story there are so many things that scientifically are wrong with this as a news story for starters we know that the incubation period so when we talk about incubation period i.e we talk about your possible contact with somebody who was infected and infectious Mm. and then you yourself get in the infection can be up to 14 days in most people in some people it can be even longer so the incubation period between being exposed to somebody who is infectious and you yourself becoming um infected or having the infection can be longer than 14 days so that's the first thing to say so if you were given the vaccine on this day um today say and say in a week's time, you then have coronavirus. What that tells me is that you had a contact prior to your vaccine yeah. 
meaning you are actually already incubating the infection. So the vaccine hasn't given you the infection. The vaccine has not not worked because, for one, it hasn't had a chance to work yet. And for two, unfortunately, you already had a contact. So if anything, you had, unfortunately, you had the vaccine too late. That's the thing to say about it. The other thing to say, yeah, the other thing to say is that uh, the vaccine itself, like I said, it did, they don't work instantaneously. I think mm-hmm. with flu, we say it's probably seven to 14 days after you've had the vaccine itself that the the antibodies and yeah. the protection of the vaccine will will be there. And it's it's similar with, with these coronavirus um, vaccines and that actually it will probably take seven to 14 days, maybe up to 21 days for you to become protected in any way from coronavirus and even then we know that that protection is not 100 percent. yeah so so it will greatly reduce your risk of infection we know that definitely but it will not 100 percent protect you against the the virus yeah, so there yeah, is still a possibility that despite being just, vaccinated oh, sorry, you may get the infection Sorry, and the other thing on top of that is we know that with the majority of vaccines that have been, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, what's the word, approved to date, they all need a booster. So, um, yes, the first vaccine will give you some protection, but it will not give you the highest amount of protection that the, the regimen exactly. itself can give you, and that most people will need a booster for longer lasting or for the full protection of the vaccine and again, that still isn't a hundred percent, and that's another thing that like people need to be aware of is, unfortunately, no, there are. I don't think there are any vaccines so in the world that give a hundred percent protectiveness, and there will, yeah, and there there will always be people also who can't have the vaccine. So there will be people who are immunocompromised, for example, maybe who can't have the vaccine, or people who are pregnant, or young children there will be people within a community who the vaccine might be contraindicated for or who may not be advised who may be advised not to get the vaccine and so one of the reasons that it's important for people who are allowed to have the vaccine to have it and if they're they're offered it to have it is because they can then protect the other people within the community who can't have the vaccine and that's very important as well. And that's where the notion yeah. of herd immunity. No, no, no. That's, that's so true. It, and it's like community talking immunity. Talking about that vaccine. So there's two that have been licensed in the UK recently. The Pfizer one is the first one. And the second one was the AstraZeneca Oxford um, vaccine. Mm. And they're two slightly different vaccines. Um, it'd be, I don't know if it might be worth just talking briefly the differences between the two. And then also talking about this new update that I don't know how you feel about it, it might be a bit controversial to talk about, but that there's been a delay in, in a lot of patients who were initially vaccinated uh, with the first dose getting, there's now, they're now delaying the second dose from the three weeks to almost three months. But let's just talk about the differences first. So like Pfizer vaccine and the um, AstraZeneca vaccine. So what are the main things that we yeah, need to know? Like sure. if someone were to, ask what are the main differences right so the Pfizer vaccine let's start with the Pfizer vaccine and and Ah, the thing to say about the Pfizer vaccine is the Moderna vaccine is actually very similar to the virus vaccine they're both RNA vaccines so I mean Mm. the Moderna vaccine hasn't been approved in the UK but it is available in the states 
Um, but the Pfizer vaccine is available here and it was the first vaccine to be given following licensing within the UK. And actually the UK was the first country mm-hmm. to license um, use of the Pfizer vaccine. So it's an RNA vaccine, which means that um, it has a messenger in our RNA. And what a messenger RNA is, is it's a short sequence of code, which when delivered into the body goes into the cytoplasm of the cells. So not, it doesn't go anywhere near the nucleus of the cell where the DNA is kept, but it goes within the cytoplasm, so the rest of the cell. And in that area, mm-hmm. it uses the body's own um, mm-hmm. machinery to then code for the spike protein. So we've already spoken a little bit about spike protein before. And um, then what happens is the spike protein is produced and it's part of um, the spike protein is obviously part yeah. of um, the SARS uh, CoV two mm-hmm. uh, virus. It's yeah. key that the, the virus uses to enter cells, but by itself, it's harmless. That's what's one of the things I wanted to say. So, so the messenger RNA encodes for the spike protein, which is then produced within the cytoplasm and expressed by the cells, and then recognised by the body and um produce then leads to antibodies being produced and these antibodies then in the future if they come across the spike protein will know that it's something foreign and will work to get rid of rid of it essentially so essentially the spike protein allows the body to make its own defense mm-hmm. towards exactly. the possible future of yeah, no, no, that's pretty good. the spike protein um, it's the simplest way I can put it. So that yeah. way, <laughs> that's the way the mRNA vaccines work. No. They do not. There's a common kind of question: Will this affect my DNA? No, it won't, because as I said, the um, messenger RNA does not actually even enter the nucleus of the cells where the DNA is within the cells. The other thing to say is actually the messenger RNA itself. One of the reasons. Um, that the vaccine is logistically yeah. a little bit challenging is because the messenger yeah. RNA has to be kept at really, really cold temperatures, so minus 70 degrees, um, in order to keep it stable and then can can be defrosted and kept at a slightly higher temperature yeah. for a couple of yeah. days prior to being kind of um, used for vaccination. Um, yeah. And this is because messenger RNA in itself is actually quite fragile and is quite easily um, degraded by the body. So once the messenger RNA has given its its, um, its yeah. signal to produce the protein, it's then degraded. So it works with, and all this works within the muscle c- cells of your, of your arm. So it's not even like going all over the place in your body. It's literally, yeah, exactly. and that's why people <laughs> have a bit of a sore arm, I guess, because there's a lot going on in that one area where, <laughs> where where we've given you the vaccine cool so that's kind of how the messenger rna and uh, like the pfizer vaccine works the yeah. oxford vaccine is a different type of vaccine it's a viral vector vaccine and um again this is a a slightly newer like technology and remember earlier on i'm talking about platform technology it's a slightly um newer um technology and what that does is it takes a virus like another virus um, in an inactivated, harmless form, so that the virus, and then it puts in again uh, a genetic code for the spike protein, 
Um, and it delivers it to the body. And again, when the spike pro- protein is then expressed within the body, yeah, it does the same thing essentially. So I mean, both vaccines essentially work in the same way. Yeah, I mean, just deliver the spike protein in a different way. I think it's, it's, it's a long and short of it. A lot of vaccines similar. Where um, I've talked in my other episode about how vaccines work. Like you said, it's you're delivering um, a weakened virus. I think it's the chim- is it chimpanzee common cold vac cold vac virus completely harmless nothing yeah, what so they've done a, is they've added in the, yeah, the dna correct. of the spike protein is that correct and then they've to that common cold virus in when as then that's the vaccine once that's in our body our body's gonna think oh goodness what is this spike protein dna what's going on here and then it's going to create an immune response to that so that if we do come across covid yeah. we already have those antibodies ready to take down and destroy the COVID nineteen, so it, it's it's a bit more like okay, I'm, I'm used to that. It's the it's the Pfizer one. I was like, what is yeah? So I've so, heard of this before. This is exciting. Well, look at a science geek. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean the funny the the thing to say about both technologies is, uh, they have been used in humans before. Um. RNA vaccines, um, there isn't actually, so the mRNA vaccines that have been uh, licensed, i.e. the Pfizer and Moderna ones, are the first vaccines, um, mRNA vaccines to be fully licensed or whatever, emergency licensed. However, this technology has been used in humans before in other infections and also actually also in cancer treatments as well. So there, there have been trials before um of rna vaccines the kind of viral vector technology actually one of the kind of most famous or most um well-known or maybe not well-known but i mean one of the technologies or the the diseases Uh. that uses a viral vector uh, vaccine to date is actually ebola so i don't know how many people know but um i mean there is a vaccine for ebola that's used during outbreaks which has been authorized and that is a viral vector vaccine that works in a similar way to the Chadox one. So then the Oxford vaccine. So um, I think one of the the great things about this year in regards to kind of vaccine technology and vaccine development is that it shows actually we now have a technology which can readily be used to produce vaccines at a faster speed um for emerging infections and emerging um diseases and i think that's really really exciting and gives me a lot of hope for the future especially as an infectious diseases doctor you know you worry about what's going to be the next big outbreak and how we're going to cope with it and what's going to happen etc etc and i think what's quite good is this has shown that actually the technology is there and you know, there have been some questions as to whether or not the new variant yes. um, yeah. will actually, whether the vaccines will um, yeah. protect against the new variant. And I yeah. think, as far as we know so far, it will do. And that will need to be monitored. Um, but the good thing about this technology is that, um, in some ways, the vaccine might be able to be altered so that it then, if there was a massive shift in the way in which the, the spike protein presented etc whatever that they would hopefully be able to 
change the antigen section of the the vaccine and and make it so that it, it worked against absolutely it's reassuring of, because of, when you of, think about how, advi- how, 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 necessary. Come, how far we've come in this year and how much science has changed technology has changed even if even if okay so like you said the new strain the spike protein is completely changed the mutations are so different that it you know the the vaccine doesn't work we have enough technology to adapt i think fast enough to compete we're not starting from scratch we have everything in place. It's just it's just changing sequencing and then getting fast. And, and I, so that's what yeah. I think is a little bit encouraging, reassuring. The more we're putting work, the more work we put into this, the the, the better prepared we will be for future changes, future pandemics. Um, and I think if we had a pandemic like this, maybe five years ago, um, maybe it would be maybe I think definitely far far more efficient at coping with it now. And 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 like you said, scientists have always been predicting pandemics i think there's a netflix show about pandemics oh, yeah, people talking about the next flu virus or something that was aired in 2018 so scientists are already aware of this and i think we're all they're always planning with mm. that with that kind of goal to be prepared for this um and hopefully the silver lining of, of last year in this is that we were, we're so prepared we're so prepared for the next one not that i want there to be a next one um but one thing I, I think I touched on before was about the delay in getting the second dose. So I think with the Pfizer vaccine, it's, it's, you have the first dose and then three weeks later you come back for the second. I think the Oxford vaccine is similar, but people I don't think have been started to be vaccinated with that one. So let's talk about the Pfizer vaccine. What, you know, I'm not, I don't know how I feel. I don't know how you feel about it, but for, for me, I was like, yeah, so, oh, I'm I mean... sure that the clinical trials have been looked and, and the evidence for the efficacy has been, based on the fact that they did of that dosing schedule but then i don't know what 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 are your thoughts so so from the also vaccine point of view actually there were people in the trials that had delays in their second dosing whether that you brief through logistics uh, or um recall um, i mean so the thing to say about the also vaccine is obviously um the initial trials oh, yeah. or a lot of the trials were done in people who, who for example were healthcare workers etc so Fair trying enough. to get people back for a second dose sometimes wasn't as straightforward as it would be if it was just somebody who perhaps was at home and so i think um there was a large proportion of people within the oxford vaccine um trials Perfect. who had a delay in their second dose but yet still had high levels of efficacy in regards to yeah. uh the protection it gave so i think that's that's reassuring uh the pfizer data we don't uh, as far as i know um yeah. that data doesn't exist as far as i, I mean i uh, but i think the rationale behind this is is unfortunately at the moment we are in mm. the, the midst of a horrendous second wave and the NHS mm-hmm. is already in many parts of the country overstretched and overwhelmed due to the number of the, the highly increasing numbers of COVID patients that we're seeing over the past couple of weeks. I mean, it's no exaggeration. I've been there. I've seen it myself. And it's it's bad. And the idea from kind of the chief medical officers is that what they would prefer mm-hmm. is they would prefer people as many people as possible mm. to at least have mm. some level of protection mm. than to not have any at all and so in some ways it's an ethical dilemma 
do you think it's a better idea for people for one person to have kind of maximum protection afforded to them by two vaccines or if it's better for two people to have say 60 70 percent protection afforded to them by one person one vaccine each and I think if you put it that way, then it's a no-brainer and you have to go ahead with this this uh, with with delaying the second dose if that ma- means that more people can be vaccinated. Um, from a kind of public health and community standpoint, it makes sense, especially if it will um, mm, definitely. Uh, slow down definitely. the rates of severe disease, which is what we're most afraid of. So, I mean, we spoke earlier on about the fact that mild disease isn't necessarily always just mild disease and there may be long-term complications. However, the thing that we worry the most about for most people is moderate to severe disease, which will lead to them being hospitalised, will lead to them being very unwell and being in hospital. Unfortunately, we've already seen that there's been a call in some areas of the country for all elective work to be be, um, stopped because of the levels of cases and this is because you know when people are unwell um in hospital they obviously take up resources such as well they take up beds obviously but exactly uh, they also need to be looked after by staff they need to be looked after by qualified staff and (laughs) although people might argue oh but yeah surely the other staff can do the other things reality is it's just we don't have the capacity for such levels of urgent care patients to be in the hospital as well as to also do the elective stuff it's just not possible I mean up until this year I'd never been I mean we all know that in the UK we have winter pressures and things get bad and you know there are extra wards open etc it happens and and those of us who've worked within the NHS for years will tell you that it's it's a common occurrence of winter in but I've never seen it where, and this is what we saw in the first wave and what we're seeing now in the second wave, but I've never seen it where the whole of my hospital is essentially filled with people with, with one primary diagnosis. We know when, if if for anybody who, who works in the, within a hospital, they know that, you know, each specialty or each kind of different type of medicine will have its own ward in a hospital or have maybe one or two wards I'm an infectious know, right? diseases specialist. I normally have, perhaps, if I'm lucky, a ward of patients that are just infectious diseases. Um, I mean, realistically, if my team wanted to look after the whole hospital at the moment, we could, because they all have an infectious disease. Obviously, we can't personally take on that burden, and other members of staff have had to come to our um to, to help with that, and that's what happened in the June the first wave. Um, we had people of all different specialities looking after people with coronavirus because we needed yeah. to we need we needed the extra staff we needed mm-hmm. we needed the extra beds and so i think it's a tough decision to make and no it's, it's... not the most <laughs> ideal scenario um but i can understand where they are coming from i, I don't know if i'm 100 percent um like yeah. No, I mean, I'd say I'm. I mean, I'm not a hundred percent happy with yeah. the idea, especially because I know people are worried about vaccination. Exactly. Um, and are already dubious about kind of whether or not they should have the vaccine, and I think it it unfortunately might affect public Absolutely. confidence in 
in in the message for vaccination because they will argue that well you told us one thing you said you know this vaccine had to be given 21 days or three weeks uh like four weeks apart and now you're telling me it can be given up to 12 weeks yeah. like um and all the time we've been trying to tell people this to trust the, the science and you know yeah. there's science behind it etc so um it's tricky but i do i do understand the rationale um and i wish we were in a better position yeah. i wish we weren't in such a horrendous second wave right now i wish that vaccination had been better rolled out and that more of no, no, the no. vaccine was available but it's just a scenario in which we find ourselves now and we need to be we need to be practical about trying to save lives and that's 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 the long and short of it unfortunately when it comes to yeah vaccination we know that healthcare workers are at increased risk of severe infection and also death so if we can protect more healthcare workers and more vulnerable people no earlier on and it's 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 definitely tough and i think like you said that the problem with these these with this is going to change in the messaging and not being clear you know uh, about the reasonings why or announcing it after it's been leaked because i don't know when i heard it i just heard it off off thing i heard it from twitter um when I, I read about it on twitter when it happened um gps being concerned mm. with oh my goodness if my patient i have to go and call and cancel all these all these all these planned vaccinations are they going to even come you know you don't want people not to turn up now for their second doses and they're not going to all not turning up for the first because they don't know when they're mm. going to get the second dose and they're not so sure that the the first dose is going to be enough to protect them like it it kind of puts through almost i understand the rationale but i think it's going to throw a span in the works you want clear messaging so people to, to buy people in and to get them in and it was super super clear at the beginning and that's why you had all those cues of all these over 80 year olds getting their vaccinations they knew exactly what was going to happen they were consented and i think it's very important to say this mm. they were consented for the mm. first and then consented for the the second three weeks later and now to be told oh sorry it could be anywhere between eight to twelve weeks i think that's not fair and i I understand they want to vaccinate ever as many people as possible for the first but what if what happens if you have those patients who like we've discussed unfortunately don't have this the the strong enough immune response to um to develop an immune response um fast enough to protect them from catching from when if they do catch covid while waiting for the second dose and what if the worst case scenario they die while waiting for the second dose? What what happens what happens then? I think that's that's the only thing that I worry about and I'm a bit unsure with. And I'm you know, luckily I'm not in a position to be prescribing and making those decisions. It's a huge it's a horrible it's a difficult decision to be to make for people. But I think like you said, if this is what we have to do to get numbers down, to protect as many people as we can, clear messaging is so, so important. We need to be crystal clear like coca-cola advert level clear like nike level advert yeah. clear we want people to really understand what is going on and that's that's what's really important i think that you probably yeah and i think you've you've touched on a really important point there mm. and something that you know i think we've discussed before anyway about healthcare messaging and i mean um you on the kind of call we had um, where we discussed vaccines a bit anyway before. And I think a lot of the problems that have come during this pandemic and a lot of the misunderstandings, misinformation, etc., are bore out of the fact that actually the messaging hasn't been clear and that it's changed. I mean, my, my argument for when 
messaging like this changes and I'm not Mm -hmm. in any way condoning this and I'm not a politician I don't have to make these decisions thankfully um is that we are dealing with a a new disease a new a new virus um there have been a number of things Mm -hmm. that we've learned along the course of the year that have changed our messaging and I think yeah. it's important that when we do change our messaging, that we're very clear about why we are doing this. And and I think there needs to be more better communication, definitely better communication as to why things changed and more honesty and transparency in regards to why a decision has been made to change things. And, and to be honest, there has there was a um do- some documentation sent out by the CMOs to the chief medical officers to healthcare workers in regards to the vaccination schedule um and why they wanted to change it um but i think the public deserve more clear messaging and more clear understanding especially actually when for years i think unfortunately there's been low levels of what i would say was health literacy within the the general public and i'm i'm not blaming that on general public i'm blaming that on kind of our systems in general and the fact that it's not something that had been prioritized in the past I think it's really important Mm. for people to have a better understanding of science medicine data um analyzing sources I mean that's one of the things that's got me a lot as well (laughs) is that you know during this pandemic every every everybody's an expert and they're not and they're normally an expert because you know they got a WhatsApp yeah. message about it, or they saw a YouTube video, or they read something on social <laughs> media. I'm not knocking these places. Well, I am kind of knocking these places as sources of information because I mean, those. I'm I'm pretty sure, and and like yeah. I'm not just talking from a science point of view. Like even like when I think back to like my history lessons as a kid, there was a lot of clear messaging about the idea that actually you know when you're thinking about making decisions based on information that you receive where it be like you know historical paperwork or scientific yeah. data you need to think about the sources of your information and the the the, yeah. the validity and the trustworthiness of those sources so i find it quite distressing that so many people feel okay with yeah. um information that they've got from kind of suspect sources just- and preaching that as gospel I find it I find it very distressing especially as somebody who's very analytical and very much kind of <laughs> I, I read a lot I I enjoy studying I'm I'm, I'm a geek I mean like and I, I, most of us are who are in medicine like we, yeah. we like like one of the, the main reasons I love medicine so much is because of continual learning I like I like gaining new information all the time and and being challenged and 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 questioning things but I also understand the importance of using reliable sources and I think that's something that has gone by the wayside in this pandemic mainly because there's been I guess such a first for people to know or want to know what's going on um but yeah it definitely it, it is and I think that's and part of the what's inspired me to be honest to even do this podcast is that based we live in a time where there's it's very challenging to to know what you know where you're getting information from, is it true, who's actually saying it, um, who to believe. And it's also very easy to just believe what you're reading when you're seeing the same thing over and over and over and over as the truth. Um, hopefully this is something, you know, schools are going to be taking into mm. consideration and maybe introducing more critical thinking to get people to really think about 
sources, evidence, all that kind of stuff, just because it's data, it's not just for the science geeks, it's just for day to day, like you need to not just take things for basin. Um, yeah.